Soccer's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Aloha and hello, my friend. Welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of EnhancerEdge.com, Brad Wilson. Today's very special guest is Party Poker US and Borgata-sponsored poker pro Katie Stone. Katie has been a mainstay battling in the poker tournament world for over a decade, from Texas to her home turf the shores of New Jersey, to the fabled online haven of Rosarita, Mexico. In our conversation today, we're going to dive into Katie's journey from growing up immersed in competition, whether it be chess or any and all kinds of sports, to becoming a successful entrepreneur in her early 20s, to eventually finding poker when, surprise, surprise, she didn't exactly love the thought of working for someone else. In our conversation, you're going to learn why I think you should always trust your quote-unquote gut at the poker table, how horrible of a human being I am for making Katie relive a very painful final table hand she was recently involved in, Katie's wisdom on how to genuinely find your poker tribe if you are obsessed with chasing poker greatness, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the amazing and brilliant Katie Stone. Katie, good afternoon. How are we doing? Hey, Brad. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very well. It's springtime now, which I'm happy about. Yeah, we, I, it's uh, springtime at the beach, I think is better. It's <laughs> mm. <laughs> perfect. Uh, I don't know where you are, but I'm at the beach and just actually came in about 30 minutes ago from a nice little stroll on the beach. And it's, it's actually perfect weather here in New Jersey right now. So that's nice, which is, which generally it's actually kind of frigid right now with the past few years. So it's nice that we can actually go outside for a little bit. That's a low blow, Katie, mentioning the beach. Uh, this this conversation is not going to, the editing job is not going to go super well for you moving forward. Just letting you know. Listen, I can't, I, you know, like the beach, I think, uh, I don't know. I think there's something very just mentally and physiologically therapeutic about salt water. Like I, I truly believe this. I think that like when you're not feeling good and when you're just like just mentally not feeling good, or even when you're physically not feeling good, I think it's like, like a good thing to just go and like sit on the beach and just breathe the air. Hopefully it's not, you know, you're not like in a very polluted or contaminated area, you have fresh beach air, but I don't know. I think something about that just like really does something for uh, people. Do you have any theories as to why? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously like, didn't we all come from, water at some point right like or no did we i mean this is my theory water as well. is a, <laughs> water is the source of life i think um, <laughs> not the salt water so much though <laughs> yeah so i mean but like you know there's there's fish and and different species that can survive in both too right and they can like or they can go in one and not the other or whatever i mean it's 
it's not it's not difficult to think that you know that shift took place at some point too but whatever it's like I just think that you know like our bodies are made up mostly of water too right so we can't, I don't know it just can't be it's like salt and water it's just very natural and cleansing maybe you know just to have something a little bit more pure in your body than you know people live in very densely populated areas with lots of pollutants and and cars and trucks and buses and sometimes access to fresh air is like you know a thing you know so it's nice to that's one big reason why I really do enjoy living near near the water it's just for that reason absolutely there's no better place to meet than visiting the beach or even like a beach town and smelling the air walking along the beach just I I just love it and I'm drawn to it and I think you're absolutely right that biologically like we came from the ocean and so we're kind of drawn to it but uh Mm -hmm. tell me tell me something about that's 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 pretty cool that you agree with me on that (laughs) that's like first like right away (laughs) yeah I was gonna whatever you said I was gonna interject and give my theory that I, I don't know if it has any basis it's just my theory and then you said exactly it so easy it's to agree cool. um yeah, pretty cool. tell me something about yourself that uh most people don't know um oh I am extremely like hard on myself to the point of like not depression, but it'll put me out of commission for like a few days because if I like feel like I've messed up something really badly, it can be anything from a hand I played online, a hand I played live. It can be something in my personal life. I, I, and, and, it can, and it doesn't even have to be like that big of a deal. I take things like really, really, really very seriously and take things to heart. And I kind of like really can get myself down on it. And then it kind of takes me a few days to come out of that. And it's so much energy to kind of go through that cycle. Um, and I'm, I've like tried to work on like figuring out ways to like simplify that cycle and, or just try to prevent that cycle from happening. But it's, you know, do you think the cycle uh, kind of makes you a little bit of who you are? Oh, it has to, right? Like, because the ins and outs of that cycle represent so much, uh, you know, within your, within your life. Right. Cause it's not just like, it's not just like a two day thing and then you're out of it. Like something has to bring you into that two day thing. Right. So it's just like how you perform, how you think, how you operate leading up to that. And then, you know, what you do during and then how you recover and, you know, the recovery can take time. And that's, that's just like something that is, is difficult these days, time. <laughs> it's really hard to find time to do everything that you need to do, uh, you know, just these days in general for everybody, not just for me, not just for you, but for everybody. It just like so much of what we do these days is just so fast paced and there's just really no downtime. And so, you know, when you look at all of these different areas of where you can improve in your career, where you can improve in your life, where you can, you know, it's, it's like trying to take out these like, these like, little emotional scabs almost, you know, just like instead of like, they shouldn't even be there in the first place, you know, just like get rid of that whole cycle. How do you do that? Well, you try to pick apart, you know, the the parts that you can, you know, somewhat, you know, minimize and then also try to figure out what the root issue is. And so it's just, you know, like I, I I really am working on that currently right now, (laughs) which is why I'm talking so much about it, but uh, it's just something that like 
causes like me, like a lot of issues, you know, Um, for for sure. I think it's a trait of high achievers in general to be very hard on themselves. Like in a, in a poker sense, I can say that I definitely had this issue for many years. And currently all I try to do is just do my best in the moment, play, make each decision to the best of my ability and just move on win, lose or draw. I think it's, it, it's hard to get to the point of just letting go when you do something kind of ridiculous and it doesn't work out. But I've also found too that in moments where I'm like in a, in a, in an online session and I do something and I'm like, why did I do that? And then I go back and look at it with more clarity after a day or two. A lot of times it's not actually the worst. <laughs> it's like, I can see the thought process. I can see what I was thinking and it's just a little results oriented thinking in the moment because something didn't work out. But, um, yeah. Do you have any examples like in a, in a poker sense of you being too hard on yourself? Oh God. Yes. Yeah, for sure. One hand in particular, uh, is from just a few months ago in November. Uh, I final tabled the, so Borgata has like a bunch of these series that they run throughout the year. Um, and they're like, you know, like a week to two weeks or whatever. And they, they generally start with like a big opener. So it's like a, like a two day or three day starting flight. And it's usually like a, like a, whatever, 500 K or million dollar, uh, guarantee. It's like a 400 or $600 buy-in. I forget which one this was. This might've been a 400. Um, but it was like day three. So it was the final table. And, um, I ended up finishing, I think, ninth, I want to say. Yeah, I think so, ninth. But we came back 10-handed, I think. But yeah, I ended up busting with King in a situation where I guess I opened under the gun one and both blinds defended. And Who are the blinds? The is... how, many, how many bigs do we got? We need more details here. So... Yeah, I mean it's a little bit hazy at this point. It was it was all very like logical, so it wasn't. It, nobody was like super deep. Everybody, I mean, I I mean I, I was like I want to say thirty thirty seven big blinds effective. I want to say small blind covers everybody. Big blind is either very equal to me or I slightly cover. Who who are who are these guys? Are that um pros so one of them so one of them yes i didn't know at the time because i i am an i am an online player i don't play that much live poker i plan to be playing more live poker in the future maybe not this year uh depending on what happens with travel and everything and tournaments but um i had planned on playing more live poker this year uh so the guy in the small blind i didn't know like who he was or whatever but he was just some guy like Apparently he's like a local, like more of a parks guy, um, parks is in PA, you know, it's kind of like a local, like very well-known guy who just like plays solid, whatever. Um, and then the big line, I actually did know who the big line is. I play with him online. Um, but he like plays like PLO and stuff online. So he doesn't like grind online tournaments or anything like that. Um, but I know him and I've played with him a lot. What do they know about, about you? Like, have you, have you been super active UTG? Um, Any information? No, I mean, it's, it's like the start of day three. So, and we started, I think we started with 10 people and we lost one. So it's just kind of early, you know, in the day. So it's like within an hour of the day. So like, no, nobody's playing like very much. And, you know, gotcha. we have already stopped. We've already stopped to discuss a chop already by then. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I was thinking that maybe you had played with him at like another table on day two or something oh, like that. So there's no, yeah, I hadn't actually. Yeah, it would have been great. Uh, and then I felt kind of dumb afterwards just because, you know, like if I would have like done a little bit more research into my opponent, uh, I would have, you know, known that just had a little bit more information. But that kind of, I don't know, that kind of just goes like so many different ways. Like, like obviously it's always going to be better to have more information on our opponents than they have about us. Right. But like, I don't know. It's just sometimes it's almost like final table situations, like in these live tournaments, like they just play a little bit differently. And then it's just almost like it really just kind of matters. Like it, it, it just, you just really have to pay attention to the dynamic at the table and the pay jumps, et cetera. Like who's really needing to cash, like what kinds of players, this is like the biggest, you know, cash of their career. What kinds of players this is, you know, just another day at the office. And it's like that stuff is just really, really important when it comes to these like live $400 final tables where 80K is for first, you know? For sure. So as far as like, what did they know about me? I mean, you know, I had a patch on. They probably know. I like the one, you know, they know that I'm a sponsored pro with Party Poker US. And so they, whatever, they know that I'm probably an online player and can make their assumptions based on that. They know that I'm a professional, I'm sure. So they're, you know, that, that, that probably gives them you know an idea that doesn't that doesn't mean that i'm like good at poker or anything that that just means that you know whatever like i'm i'm here in the same situation they are playing for a lot of money so yeah we're just you know. we're, we're profiling people you know we, we don't we have very yeah, lim- limited yeah. information and we work with sure work with all we have yeah yeah so um so the action was like just kind of like whatever like just kind of actually really nauseating um it was you know small blind the, the, the flop is like like jack eight four rainbow small blind check big blind actually leads like 300k uh i i I remember this amount i forget what the blinds were and everything but big blind led like 350k or something like that and i was next to act i was the opener i raised i made it a million how how much was uh like in the pot versus how many how much do we have back do you have any any just an estimate yeah I had about like 2.5 million back at that point or close to 3 million back at that point. And small blind covered me just barely by like, you know, maybe 4.2 or 4.3 million. Um, and, and big blind who led was the shortest stack of the three, uh, and, and small blind just piles and big blind folds. And so I'm just, you know, I'm in a really, a very, very horribly agonizing decision because like, you know, Jack eight, four, like the first thing that like comes to your mind is, is what, like, wow, this guy is just putting all of his money in the pot right now, like from the small blind, his small blind sliding range is, you know, what, and this, and, and this could have like helped me if I would have known, uh, if, if I had known that this player was, you know, more of an experienced player, I could have maybe removed fours from his sliding range from the small blind, but I added fours to his to his small blind plotting range, uh, understanding that, you know, the better, more experienced player would, would not be calling for the small line probably there. Do you remember like how, what your standard opening raise, like maybe 2.2 X or whatever? It was, um, yeah, it was just like somewhere in between 2.2 and 2.5, like whatever. Yeah. It's just somewhere in there. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, and like, it was just, it was, it was just, it was also the kind of thing too, where, at that time, like that month, November, I was doing a lot of work. Um, like even though I was playing live, 
that month during the series, I was just doing a lot of work at home, just like before my set, like during the day, like, because in New Jersey, our sessions are at night generally. So like on Sundays, they start a little bit earlier, like 530 or so, unless you're playing satellites and you have to start a little bit earlier. But in New Jersey, the week, the nightlies, like during the week are, you know, seven o'clock, 730, you can start. So like, I just remember like during that month, I had just been doing like a ton of work, like during the day and stuff. And so I was just, I was just like, I, you know, had I not been doing that much work, I probably would have just folded a little bit easier, you know, but I, I ended up not folding and just calling off and just like realizing I'll just be shown a set of eights here, like a lot of the time. But if he plays a stock like this ever, like I just cannot fold and like, it just was kind of like one of those things where I just kind of leveled myself into 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 just calling it off where you know when I look back at the situation today I just I'm like you know now that I've it's just like a few months after and I'm looking at the situation and I'm I'm you know now that I've also done other work now since then and I understand stand it a little bit better and I just kind of get on myself even still <laughs> about this hand because it's like if I would have just taken like another minute just to think about it and just get you know, I mean, I did think for a long time, so I, I, I think I took four minutes, actually, which there, is the longest I've ever thought about a hand. There may be, so so I have some some other questions that you, you may not be able mm-hmm. to an- answer, but so number one, like pre-flop, how did that action go? You you raise under the gun, fold to the small blind. How, yeah. How quickly yeah. Does, he, does he call? How quickly does he take to act? Well, you mean how quickly did small blind and big blind call the defend? Yeah, just kind of easily, not like there was no... There was not like a, a, a pregnant pause or anything like that. So, so pretty yeah. quick. Um, you know, just kind of like, you know, let's say like I open, fold, 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 actions on the small blind, small blind looks at his cards, puts his cards down, takes his chips, puts them in the pot, next to act is a big blind. So probably within that time, that time frame. Yeah. I was thinking like, obviously, you know, you hit the nail on the head, obviously. If ace jack's in the range, then that's good. Players, uh, in in my experience, w- if they call very quickly there, it feels more like a pocket pair, like a sure. pretty pretty no-brainer, easy type of sure. type of call. Like if you look down at ace jack suited versus under the gun, the wheels are going to turn a little bit. You're going to have to think, like, should I be three-betting this? Who's this player? Should I be flatting? Like, how do I proceed? Um, pocket pairs are just like, you know slam dunk let's yeah. call and see what happens type of type of situation um yeah then the big blind i mean they're they're getting a great price so they get to peel they get to peel with a with a number of things and i guess the big blind leading is probably not not super great either because if they're going to be leading with like jack x then that the, that's not too good for the small blind having the having the ace jack but Anyway, sorry to uh, yeah. sorry yeah, to rip yeah, off yeah. rip off the uh, <laughs> rip off the scab. Um, <laughs> I'm just yeah, no, it's it's working yeah. through the hand myself. But I mean, I and it, I th- and it was tough. It, it was it was just tough because like it was it was it was a kind of situation where well, they ended up chopping like one person later. By the way, <laughs> so it's like that was annoying too. You know, I mean, just whatever, not annoying, but like they, they did talk about chopping prior to um, me busting. And I think it was something like, and, and like, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to chopping at all. Like I, 
have no issue with it. But I did say that like I wanted to play. I wanted the ability to play for first, you know, and, and everybody agree, uh, agreed with that. Sure. Um, but then one but then one person disagreed with the chop at all. So like we were going to take money and put it aside or whatever. And like that would require everybody to have to stay there and wait for everybody, which we had already agreed to do. But then just the one guy didn't want to do it. So we kept playing. So, you know. And then he was amenable to it after you busted, apparently. Apparently he was because he definitely <laughs> did get like 70K or something um, or 80K or whatever. One, one final question here, and then we can leave, leave this hand in the dust. But I think it's, <laughs> it's important for the audience. When the small blind ripped it, like when the big blind led and you raised and the small blind ripped it, do you remember what your gut feeling was? Yeah, just to get rid of my hand right now. Yeah. Gut, gut feeling was yeah, get sick, rid of my sickness, hand. sickness um, basically. The, the, the problem is, is that, and, and here's what the problem is for somebody like me. The problem with that is that gut is like wrong a lot of the time because the gut is formed from a very like, not that gut, but like that feeling is just from a very like ancient poker <laughs> feeling, you know, like, you know, this guy's putting all his money in he probably has a good hand like okay like sometimes that's true sometimes that's not true sometimes it's kind of true right so just like that that feeling that you want to fold sure maybe that's instinctive first just because it's like all of your chips and it's your tournament life and it's worth whatever 30 40 50 60 70k at that time but then for somebody like me it's it's just a constant struggle because like you know i'm 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 over 10 years into my career and, you know, I've had to, and I have, I've had to learn more in the past 12 months than I have in that entire career total cumulative. And so, you know, it's, it's hard for somebody like me because it's almost tougher because you're almost having to relearn things and relearn and, and you're, you're looking at, at old situations that are just so, easy and smooth and familiar for you that have been this way for your entire poker playing life that you actually do realize that you are making mistakes sometimes and you are losing out sometimes and uh, by not making the correct call and understanding when you do have to make the correct call uh, is just something that is also new too, you know? So that's why it's just tough for, for me. It's, it's, it's a lot. It, it would be easier for somebody who had just like started playing poker a year ago or something. You know? I'm going to, so I'm going to disagree a little bit in that. <laughs> I, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, first of all, but secondly, there's a great book called blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's about making a snap reaction. Right. And like one of the stories that they tell or that he tells in the book is about this. Uh, I believe it, it, it's a, famous sculpture, right? Um, somebody finds super rare sculpture by an artist and a museum pays like $30 million for it. And they bring in experts to look at it, right? Like everything's passed all their, all their tests, all their inspections for forgeries and stuff like that. They bring in an expert and they show the expert and she looks at it. And her first reaction was, I'm sorry, you paid $30 million for this. Mm-hmm. And and she couldn't quantify why she felt that way. It was just a feeling mm-hmm. of dread, a feeling of sickness based on 
all of her combined knowledge and experience that she had learned in the field, something just didn't feel right. Even though everything looked right, it just didn't feel right. And basically Mm -hmm. the book goes into, you know, we're processing so much information all the time subconsciously that when you're a professional poker player, when you're anything and your, your first instinct is a sickness in your stomach, to me, that is extremely powerful. Um, if you're, you know, if you've been in the game for many years and your instinct and, you know, you, you've been through these experiences over and over and over and over again. So you do have experience and you're, uh, you know, a high level player, you're just going to feel sick in, in some spots and you can't really quantify why. And I found that every time I go against my instinct, it never ends great for me. Well, like, yeah, like, yeah. It just, it just, you know, I'll talk, I'll, I'll be like, fold, Brad, fold. And then the, my logic brain is like, oh, but if you don't call here, you're never calling. Oh, but Brad, you know, he could have this, this, or this. Oh, but this is, this would be a great spot to bluff if he could fold out your whole range. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. Conscious Brad inner voice. And then I call and then they show me the nuts and I'm like, oh, it, oh, it makes me so. Those are the moments that I get irate with myself when, like subconsciously I know something and then I go against it and then I get crushed. I'm like, Oh, it crushes me. So anyway, I just, and it's something that I think is honed over time for the people in the audience listening, you know, there, there's risk aversion and there's other feelings of (laughs) sickness that come with poker. But like when you're, when you're skilled, you've put in hundreds of thousands of hands, you've played all these tournaments, like in my opinion, just always go with your gut. And then if it doesn't work out, then you, you get to analyze um, maybe why you thought what you thought and then try to try to fix that. Um, but anyway, okay, I've gone. We, we've just, <laughs> I lied about the, <laughs> about the hand. I think we're 30 minutes into this. this um, no, it's, I mean, it's a, good, it's a good topic though because it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of also that, that topic of like, you know, poker theory versus like feel or whatever, you know, like they're, it's just like a merge kind of everything together. You yeah. Know? So. And in my opinion, I think it's like, it, it's all related. Uh, there's, of course it is. Yeah. There was uh, a hand, which I could, I could go off the rails again. I, I spoke with Ari Engel <laughs> a few days ago and we talked about like the quote unquote feel players and how mm-hmm. feel is just our intuition telling us something one mm-hmm. way or the other. It's based on theory. It's based on experience. It's based on all of the things but it's just a feeling that we get in the moment. And sure. there was a hand, uh, I believe it was uh, Garrett versus Andy on Live at the Bike that I saw that got me real fired up where he folded, the board was like Jack 8, 9, Deuce 4, and Garrett folded 10, 7 on the river to a bet. Oh, I did I did see this. Wait, Jack 8, 9, yeah, Queen the turn in room? It was like Deuce, I mean, I, it, there were two blanks, like Queen 10, Queen 10 was the nuts and 10, seven was the second nuts. Okay. So just Jack eight, nine, like XX or whatever. Yeah. 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 And I think I did see this hand. Yeah. I saw this and he folded. Yeah. Garrett folded. And then like Doug, Doug Polk made a a review video of it and was like, yeah, don't do that. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, and this encapsulates all the things that I believe in, like the subconscious information when your skills are honed, When your powers of observation, like I, I give Garrett all 
the credit in the world for folding there because that is, you know, he, he just knew that Andy never has a bluff and Andy never has a set. And like his range is only queen 10. And like, obviously that's what makes him a world-class player. Right. And almost everybody will second guess that instinct and second guess that gut and say, well, if I fold here, I'm never calling yada, yada, yada. But that was, uh, yeah, that, that hand got me fired up when I was watching the review. So I do have, (laughs) I did have a linear path for the conversation. We're going, (laughs) I, we've gone way off the rails or I've gone, I've taken us (laughs) off the rails. Um, so let's go way back. Let's talk about your family and chess growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Tell me about that dynamic and competition. Uh, yeah, I mean, chess was just always something that was like known to be something that everybody did in our family for some reason. I mean, I know that it started with my, well, I, I, I mean, it probably started before that, but I, I at least know that my great grandfather who came over here from Germany, uh, I know that he was like a really big chess fan player. Um, So I'm not sure if he got it from his father or not. I don't have any information on that. But then my great grandfather did pass that love on to my grandfather. And so my grandfather was really kind of the driving force of the, you know, chess activity and ambition within his own children. And then I was the only grandchild at the point uh, when he died. So he, you know, would, he, you know, would send me to chess tournaments and he had a a teacher for me and he would send me books and buy chess equipment for me, you know, boards and chess clocks and pieces and stuff. And he would always, he was kind of like old fashioned, you know, old fashioned typewriter. So he would like type out letters and he would send these typed out letters that would have like missing letters. So like, so like a lot of letters would be missing one or two, a lot of words would be missing like one or two letters or whatever. And then he would like go in there afterwards and like, like write them in himself and draw them in. But his hand, handwriting was like very shaky and stuff because he was old. Um, but he would write these letters to my chess teacher. And this was like when I was in middle school and high school. And then the same, the same letters to me. And he would usually always accompany the letter with a check for $50, which was like a lot back then, you know, <laughs> like a well, long time ago. Why did he not put the letters in? Like, no, he would, he would put, he would put like a letter, he would send a letter to me and then he would also include a check for $50. Like, oh, just like you know, I thought you yeah, said he was like, like as a, he was, he would type the letters out and then like skip letters in the words and then hand, oh, no, hand, yeah. hand write them in. I was like, I'm so confused. Um, yeah, no, the words like that would be missing letters just because the typewriter was missing. Oh, um, okay. Okay. Keys on the typewriter. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he was, so after he would finish writing it, he would just go and take the paper out of the typewriter and just like, you know, himself with a pen, just, you know, yeah. Um, I, write the missing, the missing letters. Yeah. But anyway, I thought, I thought um, there was like a game within the game, like, uh, oh, yeah, Jin no. Shahadi he, would call them gimmicks. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. But no, but he would actually include a game. <laughs> he would include like a, he would include like, like a newspaper clipping from either cause he lived in like Southern Florida, um, like a newspaper clipping from one of the newspapers down there, or maybe like a New York newspaper that still had actual like chess columns and chess puzzles. And so he would like clip that and then put that in the envelope as well and say, 
you know, I'll send you another check, you know, solve this puzzle and I'll send you another check next week. You know, like that's kind of how he was. He was, so it was like, you know, it was cool because I would be getting these checks, like, you know, all through middle school and high school just to be solving chess puzzles and stuff. And it was not a bad deal for me. <laughs> yeah, it's good uh, incentive for a middle schooler. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I just like kind of played, you know, like I would go to my lessons every Saturday morning and then um, I would play uh, at the local chess club in Houston called the Houston chess club and go to chess tournaments, mostly around Texas while I was in high school. And I'm actually still friends with a couple of people, a few, not a couple, kind of a lot of people from that world still uh, that are actually in the poker world now, uh, which is kind of cool. And then stopped playing. I, I kind of stopped playing like competitively when I got like um, in high school, I mean, I still played and took lessons, but I didn't play as much just because I was super active in sports, uh, like basketball and softball. And I went to um, just a very just academically challenging all-girls school in Houston. And so I had a lot of work to do. And I was in um, symphony and jazz ensemble as well. And, you know, var- you know, varsity sports and a few different sports. And so it was just it was just like finding the time for, um, for doing it was tough. So I didn't really play much past like my junior year, I want to say. And then um, yeah. after, after school, you, you started a camp, right? As, a, could, as yeah. a little, little gig. Could you tell me about that? Yeah. So, um, finished high school and then went, started college at UC Dallas, which is, uh, just about four hours north. Houston and Dallas are just about four hours away from each other. And it was actually, um, so UT Dallas, it was like the first year that they had started their chess program. Uh, so they were giving, they were starting a chess program where they were giving chess scholarships out. Um, I didn't, I was not a recipient of a chess scholarship, but I went to the school and it was the first year of the program. So it was just kind of like a new thing, but we had Uh, like a lot of chess players that were coming from all over the world, actually. So it was kind of a cool experience. Um, And I was there for a few years. Um, We didn't spend that much time. Like now it's like a lot, it's it's like super organized and it's like a really big program and everything. But in the beginning, it was just kind of like a bunch of chess players knowing that the program was going to be happening. And so they kind of just went there and then a few people were given scholarships. And then over the years, the scholarship program grew, but, but yeah, during that time, I just, you know, I was living up in Dallas and uh, just as a summertime activity, uh, you know, just to make some money during, I think it was like my freshman year actually, or my sophomore year, I just started a summer chess camp for kids because I had spent like so much time uh, in Houston in like summer like volleyball camps, basketball camps, soccer camps and stuff like that. Cause my mom was a single mom and she, it was just the two of us in Houston. She worked like a lot. And so I just spent a ton of like her work was right near Rice university in Houston. So she would just, you know, I would spend every summer there um, just from like the beginning of summer, to the end of summer. I did every single sports camp and I did all the boys camps too, like just because like she had to have me there. And so, yeah, I just kind of got the idea. I was just like, why don't, why don't just like have a chess camp? And so it was just like, it was just like long story short, it just grew really fast, like crazy. And it went from one chess camp in Dallas 
with like 70 kids on the first year um, to the point where I eventually sold the majority of it like six or seven years later. Uh, and there were over, there were camps in over 100 U.S. cities across the U.S. And then there were also like in school, in curriculum chess programs, like during, before or after school in like 60 to 75 like public and private schools in Houston, Dallas, Austin, DC. Um, and so it was, it was kind of cool. It was just like, it was kind of like a, kind of like a very fortuitous <laughs> combination of things where it was me and my, I, I was married before me and my ex-husband, we, we did it together and it was just kind of a very, uh, you know, great timing, you know, good idea, right, right partnership, right people to do it. You know, like we were just kind of young and making it up as we went along almost, but it was, it was really successful, like really, really fast. And, um, a, you know, huge learning experience for us, you know, just going through that and then going through the sale of, of it too, was like, you know, like a year and a half long process. And that was, you know, it was just kind of like a, that was just like a whole college education right there. <laughs> you know, it was just a very, very dense process. So, How did you um, feel when you when you sold it? It's U.S. Chess, correct? USA Chess. U.S. Chess. chess is the yeah. USA Chess is uh, well. It it they changed the name. It's mostly active learning now um, because they they do other things other than chess. They do other types of uh, summer camps now. Um, U.S. Chess is actually the national governing body for chess in the United States. How did I feel? It was you know it was it was kind of like bittersweet because it was just like you know this was this was just an idea that we had had. And then we, you know, just kind of did whatever we wanted to. And then it was successful and we enjoyed it. Um, I think it was, it was more so just the uncertainty of not knowing what I was going to do with my life later on, because I knew that, you know, I was kind of like screwed almost because I started this thing when I was like 19 years old and I had, like now what was I going to do that like, you know, I it wasn't really like feasible for me to go get a job somewhere or something just because I had never had a job, you know, and like I wasn't exactly like really excited about jumping in and working on somebody else's project. I had never done that before. I didn't know what that meant. So it was as I was like thinking about it and taking time, it was really hard for me to figure out like if that was even going to be an option for me to work. On, for somebody else or something. I know that sounds really, probably really selfish or something. I don't know, but it's, it's totally it's from, a, the from only, a person that's been a professional poker player for 16 years. It's totally selfish. <laughs> it's really selfish. It's horrible. <laughs> can't understand it. Can't understand never wanting to work for somebody else <laughs> at all. Yeah. No, I think like yeah. this, this is very yeah. common. I, I think that's, you know, I'm going to, we're going to get into you, you know, finding poker and getting in poker, but like, mm -hmm. this is a feeling yeah. that drives people. It, it drove me to find, yeah. find a thing where I'm not subject to somebody else's silliness. Um, and I can, yeah. I can yeah. make my own schedule and it's a meritocracy where I learn, I grow, I improve, I can dictate how much money I'm going to make. I can change my schedule. I can, there's a lot of freedom that that was appealing to me as, you know, a 19 year old kid getting into poker. So like, I, and that's kind of the dream, right? That's, that's why mm -hmm. people want to be professional poker players is that, that exact thing. I think it's, yeah, it's the most understandable thing in the world as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah. And yeah. yeah, for sure. So how'd you get into poker? You, you're. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, not long after that, um, I kind of took a few years where, well, well, so we sold the majority of the company, um, still have a small percentage of it to this day, actually. Um, but sold the majority of the company. And then I actually stayed on for a couple of years, uh, as a vice president. And this was in like, um, this was like 2005 and, and, you know, I, these guys, like, they're great. You know, the guys that, that took over the company, they really, you know, they were really great. They, they took so many of the things that we had wanted to do and we just physically couldn't because we just didn't know how logistically just everything operational, whatever. And they really did take a lot of those ideas and put them into play and they did a great job. So that I kind of had a, I guess, an atypical experience in that where when I was reading up a lot on the experience of selling a company and then working for the new owners, because that was, I was kind of terrified of that. You know, like I remember one time where I, I, it was like Monday or something. And then like, I, I booked a ticket to Milan for like Wednesday afternoon. And like, I didn't tell them about it. <laughs> like it, it didn't, like it didn't occur to me that like I had to, you know, like this is the mind, this is my frame of mind. It's absolutely it never occurred to me that I needed to let them know. And so that was a learning experience. That was like my, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, this is working for somebody. This is what this means, you know? And, and they were really nice. They were great about, it. you know, they were awesome. They were just like, well, yeah, you know, generally when you go on a trip or, you know, out of the country, you kind of just have to let us know and just give us a little bit of notice. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll have my laptop, you know, well, yeah, but you're, you know, seven hour time difference. So that kind of makes a difference too. And, but, but yeah, I mean, I was lucky that they, they really, they were great. They, I stayed for, on for two years with them and they, they um, did a great job and were great guys to work with. And so, yeah. And uh, even though, even though this is an interview show, I don't want to pry too much as far as the financials mm-hmm. of that, but I assume sure. you had a hundred cities, so you did okay. Yeah. You did okay after the yeah. sale, right? Yeah. It was, it was enough to where I didn't have to really do anything for, you know, I, I had time to figure out what I was going to do with my life, basically. Um, like I, I owned my house. We had built a, a nice house had, um, in, in Dallas, in North Dallas. Um, owned the house, you know, just had a good, you know, just kind of a good starting stack, you know. And so found, basically took a few years off. Um, I, I also had horses, so like real horses. And so I just kind of took a few years off to just play with them. And, you know, I just rode my horses around and played with them for a few <laughs> years and didn't do much of, didn't do much of anything, actually. I like that you um, quali- qualified they were real horses. So. Yeah, real, <laughs> So we didn't think <laughs> you're just playing with stuffed horses for yeah. two years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't really do much of anything. I mean, I did, I was playing poker, I, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was needing to do it for money or anything. It was just like, you know, a hobby. I mean, I was probably playing poker like three times a week or something, you know, but it wasn't like I needed to play poker to pay my rent or anything or my mortgage or something like that. It was just like, Oh, this is like, let me try this and let me see if I can be good at this. Because at the time, a lot of my other friends in chess were also kind of switching to poker and learning poker at the same time. Uh, So we were all kind of interested in it around within like, the same like three year period or so um a lot of chess players kind of started switching over to poker and so yeah I mean I I you know I kind of just dabbled in it for a few years and like you know whatever I lost a bunch of money I think I lost like 30 or 40k or something like playing you know like 
about like $200 tournaments or something like that, you know, like something stupid or whatever, $400 tournaments, cash games and stuff. And um, I just like, I quit. Cause I was just like, this is stupid. Like, I'm not like, I, I was just being spoiled, you know, like I didn't, I, I didn't succeed at something right away and, and I lost a bunch of money and then I quit. And so, you know, I took like some more time off. I took like another year off to like kind of figure out if like what I was going to do or whatever. And, and then I just, what was your, pl- your plan in that year once you quit playing poker? Because this feels like there has to be this transition period where you're like, ah, this poker thing is stupid. I'm just losing money, taking time yeah, off, I, and then jumping into poker in earnest. Well, when I, you mean, so like, what did I do when I, when I quit poker the first time? The, yeah. I've only quit yeah. it once, but when I quit, and nothing, quit I didn't really do back, anything. Didn't do anything. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. I didn't really do anything. I just kind of just, I just kind of hung out, you know, I didn't, what? I mean, I did, I did explore some other options as far as, because I did have a few, I did have a few options at that point, as far as like people wanting to maybe get involved with something surrounding the business that I had recently sold. I had a, I had a pretty strong non-compete agreement. So I had to be very careful about anything like that. But there were certain things that I could get involved in if I wanted to. And so I, I did kind of like kind of play around with those things for a few months. And I, I I talked to a few people about some ideas and I did, you know, like I talked to a few lawyers and a few, you know, designers and things like that. And I, I quasi worked on these ideas that I'd had for a few months. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I just decided to go the poker route what, <laughs> a few months there, later i just decided was there anything that lit the fuse for poker yeah yes there was so it was the end it was getting towards the end of 2008 and i was living i was still living in dallas um my grandmother was sick and needing to move from a three-story condo on the beach in new jersey into a one, you know, flat apartment because she was, uh, her knees were really bad. So I basically decided that I would move back East and help move her and help with her care while also starting to play poker again. But this time I was doing it in New Jersey and not doing it, you know, out West. And so, you know, that, that was kind of like, I had the opportunity to do it. I was able to, I was able to just pick up and, you know, move, to New Jersey for, you know, a long time. And I, you know, left my house in Dallas. I had people, uh, I had, you know, a bunch of dogs and cats and stuff. So I had somebody stay at the house and take care of my animals. And I moved to New Jersey and that was the end of 08. And then that was, you know, that was what did it. I, I didn't stop after that. So what was your first taste of success in poker? It was literally the weekend I got there <laughs> at the time. That'll do it. In Atlantic City. That'll do and it. And I won two. Yeah, I won. It was so funny because my grandmother, who, you know, she was the one that like I was helping. So she, I had told her my plan. Like, this is what I was going to do. Like, okay, I'm going to start playing poker again. This is going to work. I can come back and help you in New Jersey. And, you know, I'll split my week. Like, so half the week I'll be down in AC and half the week I'll be up in, you know, Monmouth County helping you. And so it was, it was fun. So it was like, and so like that first weekend I got there, I was just kind of excited, you know, because like I, I had just driven cross country with my little dog and uh, I think it was like the next day and she was, and she knew that I was excited to, you know, to get started. And 
she was like, well, why don't you go down to Atlantic City and see what they've got going on down there? And I was like, happily, <laughs> you know, happily, let me go and check this out. And I ended up winning like two tournaments that weekend, like back to back days, like at the Taj, like I played like the Saturday tournament and then like won a Sunday tournament. I think I won like $8,000 that day or something. And it was like a big deal for me because it was my first day back. And I just remember calling her from the bathroom in the Taj, just being like, I won the tournament again. And she was just like screaming on the phone. It's just <laughs> like so funny. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that it was just, it was kind of a perfect, you know, it's like, you want to get back into poker, you make the decision to get back into poker, you drive cross country, the first two poker tournaments you play, you win, you know, so maybe it's like, if I lost, maybe I wouldn't be here today, obviously, but I, I didn't lose. I won them. And in everybody, I think in every poker player's journey, there just has to be some sort of moment like this else. Mm -hmm. Why would you keep playing? <laughs> like, why would, why would anybody keep playing and suffering year after year, losing money? playing cards like there's always some sort of breakthrough you know yeah and you have to think too like and and also just like what else is going on in people's lives too you know like so many times it's probably just like a perfect storm for me it was because I was in this massive transitional period of my life you know where it's like moving cross country and like you know moving into a new area or not a new area moving back home to where my family but moving into a new area career-wise because I was starting, you know, I decided to do poker full time, uh, for good this time. And like, I was determined, like I wasn't going to fail because it's, that failure the first time did not feel good at all. Like it was, I hate to say it was like my first feeling of like real failure, you know, losing that 30 or 40 K or whatever. in that, you know, first you know year that I was playing poker was like a big, big failure for me. Um, and well, yeah, so you, I just you started a successful business at 19. I mean, yeah, you've been, you were how old yeah. at that time when you, you lost? I mean, I was like 20, yeah, I was like 25, 26. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I wasn't like, I, I just, I just was kind of like determined, like I'm going to do it right this time. And I don't know, just like everything kind of falls into place sometimes, you know, like where you, you have the opportunity to, to move to an area where you can, you know, now pick up the career that you want to continue. And you have the flexibility to, to do that while taking care of your responsibilities with your family. And then, you know, you end up meeting, you know, the right person or the right people that, that help you. Because obviously, like we all know, like meeting or having the right friends in poker will be the difference between success and failure the most of the time for us. Right. So, you know, realizing that I didn't have the right, you know, group of people around me or the right types of people, people with similar goals, similar mindsets, you know, and then having to find those people isn't always the easiest thing either, much less finding them in Atlantic City, New Jersey, probably not going to have a very high success rate of that. So, um, so yeah, just like, you know, I, I did find the right people. I did, I did manage to luck onto some, really great people who I'm still very good friends with to this day who, you know, you know, generally don't say that you meet lifelong friends in, in Atlantic city. <laughs> <laughs> I've, never been, say, I, I, I've never been to Atlantic city actually, but um, you're, you're absolutely right about the people that, that you surround yourself with. And that's something that I've preached over and over and over again on this show what is up, my loyal Chasing Poker Greatness listener? 
Coach Brad here, and I just wanted to take a moment to ask you a simple question. How many times have you heard my guests and I speak passionately about the benefits of poker coaching? You get to expand your poker network, receive expert feedback you can rely on, and have your burning questions answered by a trusted mentor. Which brings me to the Poker Power Hour, a series of 100% free live one-hour poker webinars, masterclasses, and hand history breakdowns that kick off each and every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Poker Power Hour will be led by me, Coach Brad, as well as some of your favorite Chasing Poker Greatness guests. It will be your weekly guide for helping you plug your leaks, skyrocket your poker growth, expand your network of crushers, and inevitably win more money on the green felt. The Poker Power Hour is premium content and live only. There will be no free replays or view on demand, and the content will eventually be released as paid training only. So head to EnhanceYourEdge.com, opt in to the Poker Power Hour, and get for free today what you'll have to pay for it later. Once again, to catch the Poker Power Hour every single week, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com and join the email newsletter. Now, back to the show. Let me ask you a question now. So imagine there's a, a carbon copy of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Who's, you know, 20, 22, 23 years old that wants, oh, to, get, wants to get in, <laughs> wants to get into <laughs> poker. What is a clear path that you would tell them to be able to surround themselves with like-minded people that share the same vision, share the grit and determination? How would you advise them on going about that? So you're saying that they, they want to make poker, like they, they really love poker and they already know that they want to make poker their career and they're in their mid-20s is what you're saying. Correct. So like how do they go about finding like the right tribe kind of yeah, is what you're saying. Exactly. Man, it's tough. It's <laughs> really, 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 really tough. It's not, there's, there's no blueprint for it, right? Like it's, it's something that will change. It will, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've had in, in my kind of like, you know, you, you, you start to form like an inner, you have an inner circle that's, that's, you know, you have, and then you have like an, a middle circle and then like an outer circle and like how you form those, whatever one can form before the other, they can merge, they can, you know, whatever, but like, it just takes like, it's hard because when you're just starting out, you don't know where to place somebody. So you, you might place somebody in your inner circle when really that's a poor decision. Number one, because maybe they just aren't very good at poker and they're giving you the wrong advice. Number two, maybe they're just like, maybe not a very good person and they might be giving you you know the wrong advice or have, you know, some sort of ulterior motive or whatever like that. And that, and, and, and the problem, the reason that that arises is because you need to find these tribes within the poker world. Well, a lot of the times the people you're meeting in the poker world are not people that you've known your entire life. So you have to meet them quickly and then assess quickly. And you don't have that much to go off of other than what's in the poker room, right? So you don't really know these people in real life. So that's like a ex- whole extra set of challenges. So now you're trying to decide, you know, you're, you're trying to make assumptions off of people you don't really know that great, <laughs> you know, like poker and personal. Uh, and, and that's, that's a very, very big challenge. Especially when you factor in arrogance 
and people overestimating their ability and their aptitude yeah. in a game like mm-hmm. poker, people can seem like they've got it together. They can seem like they're the smartest person in the room when the reality is they're just fooling themselves and everybody else. And if you make that person one of your, the people in your inner circle, it's going to cause a lot of damage. I think it's... Yeah, for sure. I was very fortunate too. And I thought about this a ton, you know, for the audience that's listening, this is a pain point in people's poker journey. How do I find these people? How do I find the crushers who have my best interests in mind and just go out and, and, you know, get them in my inner circle and then just hit it hard. Right. And it's not a simple, there's no simple solution as that, that I have found. And the only thing that, that came to my mind when just now is that, you know, there's an expression that your vibe attracts your tribe. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A million percent. Like, oh my God, a million percent. And like, when I, when I think back to my career playing poker, you know, I've talked about a friend of mine that I got involved with when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old and we played spades together and he was my spades partner. We talk strategy every day. Like I, you know, i I was like daydreaming in high school, writing out spades theory on my paper. And now that I think about it, like we got hooked up because I was so hell bent on being good at a silly card game, just typing in the lobby, talking to people, discussing strategy, stuff like that. That was how I met my friend who eventually led me to poker. And he was as obsessed with being great at spades as I was. So I think in that sense, like when you have that obsession, when you have that fire that's in you and people take notice, that is, you know, that that's a, a good way to attract your tribe. That's but, legitimately the most truest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, no, seriously, it really is because that's exactly what eventually ends up happening. You know, like it's, it's not a perfect route, you know, like it's never a direct path. You know, I don't know any person. I don't personally, I'm sure that just, it has to exist, whatever, but I don't know any person who has a, who just has a straight success line that just goes straight up and they've experienced no hurdles in their poker career, no hurdles with anything. Like, I don't know that that exists, but I don't even, I don't even think it's healthy for that to exist. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, eventually, yes, like that is what happens because along the way of you figuring out all of that stuff and figuring out what you want to be, who you're going to be, what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, you know, what kinds of people uh, you have around you is then what you start to figure out. And you're absolutely right. Everyone else kind of starts to sense that as well. And then next thing you know, you know, you you know, maybe somebody offers to study with you and maybe it's somebody that you really want to study with. And maybe, you know, that's a turning point for you. And, or maybe you, you know, take a screenshot of a hand that you played versus somebody that you, you know, had their phone number or you follow them on Twitter or something. And maybe you send them that screenshot and maybe you just say something like, you know, Hey, you know, I, I, whatever, like, I'm not sure what you had here. I felt like, you know, whatever, blah, 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 blah. You know, just, just one little sentence, you know, just some, some little inkling, 
you know, and, and maybe you get a response and maybe that person says, Oh yeah, I played that hand like shit. You know, you got, you know, you, you, what, what you, you know, what you were doing was, you know, better. Well, whatever, you know, whatever, however people talk, everybody talks differently, but you get what I'm trying to say. It's just like, you know, those are ways that you can make little kind of organic attempts at building your tribe. And guess what? If you don't get a response so what you know like it, you, you're you're passionate and joyous of the game uh, about the game and you you want to learn about the game you know you talk to enough people and become friends with enough people eventually you'll just kind of be able to select your own friends also you know and and that's that's a good thing too katie you're dropping greatness bombs and i just had this um this thought just now that made me feel a little, uh, little sheepish that the name of the podcast is chasing poker greatness, right? Like if you're chasing poker greatness vigorously with passion and fire, you will find other people who are on that same path. And that's where you connect. That's where the poker network comes from because humans are incentive driven creatures, right? We want people in our tribe that are going to push us, that are going to offer value, um, allow us to improve. We're going to be able to have conversations where everybody benefits and you know, you grow, you grow on a regular basis. And I think that's really at the heart of hooking up with a good tribe is just providing value, just getting after it, you know, chasing poker greatness yeah, and doing the best, doing the best that you can, asking questions, being curious, being insatiable, being tenacious and not, feeling bad, not getting knocked down and crying about bad beats and uh, how horrible variances and how bad things are going. That's not going to attract a good, a good tribe. So anyway, that's a uh, yeah. kind of, <laughs> kind of funny yeah. realization that I just had. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a good one. And, and something, and also you'll, you'll also become a little bit like very particular too about your circles, you know, sh- so you'll uh, have, yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, and, and this is something that I kind of, I do kind of struggle with this a little bit about keeping the circles appropriately in their lanes kind of, cause I tend to merge a lot and that's just like a lot of extra work and a lot of extra excess and a lot of it for no reason. And it causes issues and stuff, but like, I'm getting better at that, but like also like you'll start to really want to refine those circles and the information to where, you know, even particular, you'll pick up on particular, I don't know, patterns that somebody has, like the way somebody responds when you send a question or you have a question, however you're communicating, Discord, Skype, text, email, whatever, however you're communicating with these people. And, you know, however, how somebody responds to a question or, or how somebody responds to something that you're saying, I think is really telling. And I think that like something that's really important that I've learned is to always look for openness. And like the ego that you were talking about, look for somebody who's able to drop their ego because that is just so incredibly important and indicative of somebody's willingness and capability to learn. And you want to surround yourself with people who want to continually learn and somebody who's a little bit touchy about their viewpoint about a particular hand without looking it up or without having any data to back up what they're saying is, is just maybe somebody that you want to push off into a little bit more of an outer circle. Um, in my opinion and in my, in, in my peaks and valleys of my life. 
hundred percent. And in poker, I think there are three little words that are a tell. I don't know. Listen for, I Mm -hmm. don't know when you ask a question, because, you know, when I, when I ran a Skype group, we had uh, full of coaching students. Um, There's tons of interaction. We had a couple of rules. One of the rules was no negativity. Um, Mm -hmm. No, just, no, just moaning and complaining and crying about bad beats or running bad or whatever it was. Like I tried to nip that in the bud right away. But a second thing was like, people would ask me questions and I would say, I don't know because Mm -hmm. in poker, you have different levels, uh, different degrees of certainty. And to assume you have all the answers, to assume that you know all the things, there's no growth there. And also right. it's disingenuous to say like, oh yeah, this is what's right. Like, no, sometimes you don't know. And it's in that, in not knowing that you investigate further and that you learn and grow. So like, be very aware of if people are saying, I don't know, let, let, let me think about that. Let me run some Sims. Let me just think about this more in depth and get back to you. Um, those are the type of people that like I want in my corner because they're constantly learning. They're constantly asking questions. They're constantly trying to grow and be the best that they can be. Yeah, for sure. And, and like, and like something else too, that's just like really simple. Like, like if you're like looking at a hand history or something and like, or you send somebody a screenshot of a hand and like, like one of my study partners is like, I love him because like, I, I'll send him spots and I'll be like, Oh my God, don't hate me about this. And he'll just be like, Katie, like no spot like with a hundred big blinds involved or somewhere around there is, is going to be like uninteresting, you know, like just don't ever think that that's ever going to be not something that's going to be fun to look at. But like when you're looking at these hands and stuff, like, or to like doing it in person or whatever, like actually think about the hands, like the people that are just automatically looking at a spot or once you tell them a hand history, just like automatically just like spitting out, the first answer that comes to mind without really thinking about it, you know, is also kind of telling for me. Uh, I, I need time to think when, when somebody's coming to me with a hand or if I'm going to somebody with a hand, like that requires time and thought and analysis. And it's not just an easy answer like, oh, yeah, you should have folded or, oh, yeah, you should have three bet. You know, it's like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not always what we're looking for. Like, we really need to look at this hand and understand what we can learn from it and extract from it and know how we're not going to make the same mistake in the future and like take a few minutes to think about the damn hand you know and that's like that's something i personally really appreciate in a study partner um and it's proven to be to be really successful you know for sure and this is my issue with a lot of forums and message boards that somebody says that something is quote-unquote standard immediately and then all future thought kind of goes out the window. Goes um, away. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, no, <laughs> like I've never, I've never used forums or message boards to improve my poker game just because a lot of the things that were said, I, I could totally disagreed with, but then once somebody says something, everybody just agrees with it. And then it, then you're just entrenched in your side and you're just defending your thought process. And for me, it was like, this is not beneficial to me. Like, well, yeah, because the forums, the forums also are not always that friendly of an environment too. So if you're the lone dissenter, I'm a mod on two plus two. I'm, I'm actually a founding mod on two plus two. I go way back on there and, and like everybody knows two plus two is like not always and not is like the most friendly environment. And it's like, especially like, you know, in, I mean, I don't know how it is now, but in the past it was kind of like, you know, like 
I remember my my first post in high stakes MTT with a hand from like a 109 rebuy in like 2012. And I remember legitimately being sick to my stomach after pressing the post button because of how, you know, terrified I was of getting ripped apart on the hand, you know? And of course, like, that's not a good learning, learning mode, <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, if, if you're the lone dissenter in a hand and everybody's coming after you, you know, that, that you're wrong, that's also not a good learning mode, you know? So and plus you don't know who you're talking to either a lot of the times, uh, on the internet too. So, but, um, yeah, forums have not been super useful for me. Um, yeah. as far as like improving my poker game. And I think they've, they've certainly gone downhill over the years. Uh, I think two plus two and the Reddit forum in particular is like, Oh my God. Yeah. Don't, don't even, don't even get me started. Um, if That's you want, unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> if you want a lot of feedback on a meme, post a meme on there. Don't post a hand history where people are actually trying to learn and grow and improve their game because just, it does, doesn't get engagement. Right. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's very weird. Like lots of people want to be great at poker. Lots of people want to improve at poker, but they don't want to think about poker. Like they don't want to think about poker in depth at a level that hurts their head, that makes them tired, that makes them feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's just human nature. We want easy answers, but in a game of, of chaos and unpredictability, every single session that I play, there's always, God, I'm 50, a hundred spots where I'm not sure. My level of certainty sure. is low and you just move on. You just keep playing. Sure. It's when you get caught in that, the, the thought where everything has to be perfect and that, you know, if, or the thought that what well, everything you're doing is perfect, I think that's detrimental because then you're never growing. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of like why working with other people is, is helpful too, because I think some, some, a lot of poker players, especially poker players who are working with software and they're doing and they're running sims on their own, it, they, it's very easy to kind of just be very solitary in that. But that can also be really detrimental to your game. So because specifically because of what you're talking about, you kind of need like feedback from other people too. You need other ways of looking at like what you're doing and um, and, and sims create certainty. Uh, they they create. Uh, I don't even know how to say it, fallible certainty <laughs> where mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. You're, you're so convinced that something is right based on the sim that you just, you just do it, implement it regardless of the results and assume that you're doing everything correctly. Right? Like the hand, the hand that we broke down, um, the fact that the small blind called pretty quickly, right? That to me mm-hmm. is a big piece of data and a big piece of information that I would have tried to implement in live action play at the table, but that's something that you're never going to be able to equate for in a sim, unless you node lock and, and put it in there. It's never going to take any piece of small data or information like that into consideration when it's spitting out, uh, spitting out what action it wants you to take. Yeah, yeah, because 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 like that person who is running, like let's just take like that person running the sims, like let's say somebody who's being very solitary running the sims, and, and maybe they don't play like a lot of live poker you know, and then, but if they do, like, let's say they do have a study partner or they do, they are talking to somebody who is playing live poker, they would kind of learn that side of it from their partner, you know? So those are things that the sim, like you said, is not going to teach. Right. Uh, but it's a, it's a question that people don't even think to ask until they talk to somebody exactly. else. And it's like, exactly. oh, wow, 
that that's a factor. That's something I can factor into my decision-making process. And then you see it everywhere. You start, you start seeing it all the time. Yeah. It's just, it's always so beneficial to work with other people because they, they see what you don't see and give you clarity when things are unclear. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? Okay, I'll, I will. I will tell you what book. I'm not a huge poker book person. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do think that there is one book that I think all poker players should read, and in particular, just because as I'm getting older. I am, I've kind of witnessed a whole new round, a whole new generation of online poker players now that, that, you know, because with New Jersey online regulation back in late 13, early 14, there's a whole new group of people that are playing online poker for the first time. And a lot of these guys are kind of young and they don't know about poker history. And, you know, when I have to explain to them, you know, when the screen name Giboro you know, pops up at their table uh, and they don't know who that is <laughs> or, uh, you know, that that's kind of like, it's kind of funny. It's kind of sad, you know, whatever. Um, but anyway, the book that I would, I would, um, I would recommend is, I forget the title. Oh, The Professor, The Banker and the Suicide King. Is that it? Yes. Is that believe, the book? Yeah. I believe it's by yeah. My- Michael Craig. Just for historical perspective, you know, because, so many of these newer poker players, they just don't know anything about, you know, and, and that's just a, a little snapshot of, of poker, of things that were going on back in the day too, you know, but it's kind of cool that that book exists and it's a good book and it's well-written. It's a great story. And uh, I think that, I think that all poker players should, and poker fans should read that book because it's great. I love that book. It's Probably my favorite poker book. Um, just don't Is take it. Really, any- well, you and I have a lot in common, man. Me and you, we're <laughs> supposed to be like friends or something. Because <laughs> just do- I, <laughs> I agree. But just nobody listening to this, don't take Ted Forrest's um, bankroll management style. I think that's uh, <laughs> one takeaway from the book. Like the story, yeah. the Andy Beal game, all of that. Um, just an incredible story. I. I Oh, I love that book. I need probably need to reread yeah, it's it. It's really in about a, ten years. Fa- yeah, fascinating. I need to reread it too. That's a good like airplane reread when you don't have small children trying to throw um, things at the people in front of you, and you can use <laughs> your hands. That's a really good airplane read for sure. Yeah, I need to reread it. If you could erect a billboard every poker player has to drive past on their way to the casino, what would it say? Just be nice. There's, there's so much in that, man, there's just so much about being nice that affects like everything about the game and about the environment. And there's also so much that can carry over too, you know? So like, you know, East Coast is known for not being that friendly. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that. I'm not making it up. I'm not talking trash. I'm from New Jersey. You know, this is where I'm born and bred. I live here. It's a tough place sometimes. People have short tempers. People are very forceful and passionate about what they want and they believe. Sometimes that can carry over into the poker room. Sometimes that can make playing environments not as nice, a little bit less hospitable than you'd like, maybe even more so for women. And there's just, 
you know, so much about being nice at the poker table. There's so much it can do, not just for the game, but like when you're practicing being nice to people, it's probably going to overflow into other areas of your life. And how the hell is that bad? You know what I mean? Like, like I, I've seen so much dealer abuse and like at the, I've seen more dealer abuse than player to player abuse in my entire career. And it is heartbreaking and it's sickening. And it's not something that I am always capable of standing up for because most of the time I am also the only other woman at the table and I'm literally setting myself up as a target if I open my mouth. So it's, it's an infuriating situation to either not be able to say something, to feel like you can't say something either because for whatever situation, whatever reason, but it's something that, that I myself work really, really hard on here in New Jersey at Borgata. I'm a sponsored pro at Borgata. It's something that, that I've worked hard on with the poker room at Borgata. I've, the um, tournament director staff allows me to talk to the dealers. I talk to the players a lot. Uh, you know, just kind of like having everybody have eyes open and just willing to stand up and say something. If you see something happening that isn't okay and knowing that the floor has your back, the, the dealers have your back, when everybody's, you know, on the same page, uh, people are way more likely to actually speak out against you know, somebody being rude to the dealer or throwing cards at the dealer. Um, and I actually spoke about this last summer at the TDA summit that was hosted um, by the WPT and Matt Savage at ARIA um, about ways that casinos can, you know, help implement these kinds of, of, of things to help poker rooms be a little bit more um, welcoming and inviting and, and help to sustain, you know, new players, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, just be nice would be my I'm so sorry that was a really long answer <laughs> <laughs> no it, it's well said and a very important thing and I'm uh I'm ashamed that I haven't stood up more so in my career for the sake of dealers and I'm also ashamed at the reasoning being that the people who typically are berating the dealers are the whales and the bad player at the table sure and but you're not alone I mean that's just how it's been that's just the standard in the game you know like Somebody's got to, somebody needs, you know, it, it, it takes a community of people taking the first steps. And if I could go back, I would do a better job. But for sure, the dealer is, you know, they're, they're shuffling cards randomly and dispensing them to, to the players. And like they have no control over who gets a bad beat or whatever. And I think that like logically everybody knows that. But regardless, it's not okay to crut for, it's not okay for, a whale, a bad player to crush the dealer, to throw cards at them, to verbally abuse them in, in any, any sense. Like they're not going to leave. The whale's going to continue playing cards. They're not going to stand up and be like, Oh, well you're angry at me. I'm going to leave. Like they're going to sit down. They're going to keep playing. So stand up, um, stand up for that kind of abuse to dealers, to women. Typically those are the two major, um, targets yeah i mean and like it's it's not it's not like you know it's not like i'm saying i'm it's not like i'm saying oh you got to take all the emotion out of the game and just you know everybody has to be robots like no like i understand like sometimes when you lose a hand 
you sometimes people get mad. Sometimes they kind of, when they fold their cards, they kind of slam their cards down or kind of toss them, you know, forcefully towards the muck. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. That's, that is completely not what we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about some, like targeted abuse toward the dealer, either verbally or physically, or like intentionally multiple times over throwing your cards at the dealer intentionally. Like that's what we're talking about. For sure. And there are of course dealers who have dealt to me in the past that have done something or said something that I felt was out of line and I've been combative with them. Uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah. that that's something that just, that happens. But As like, have I. Yeah. Yeah. It, that we're not talking about either one of those. It's just like, you know, be no. cool, man. No. Just be cool. Uh, yeah. Take, take a stand when somebody's mistreating somebody else and um, the game will be better all around, more inviting. Uh, if the, if the bad player does leave, there's going to be so many more, recreational players that play the game because of a fun, inviting environment. Sure. And I have to say that I personally noticed a difference this January when I played a ton of live poker this January. I noticed a big difference in the overall just people being a lot nicer. And a few other women also mentioned to me how they, and this was this one of them wasn't was somebody who was not familiar in the area. She had come from out of town um, and had mentioned that, yeah, everybody was really, really nice. And and I'm like, well, that's really good because this part of the country is not known for that. <laughs> you know, like, and that's, you know, and so just getting, getting everybody on the same page where you're all working together, you know, for, for an operator, for a casino, you know, you can make a difference. You can change the culture of the room by, you know, when, when somebody at the table sees, another guy call another guy out for saying something disrespectful to the dealer, you know, maybe you're not changing the guy who said, you know, the obnoxious thing, but the rest of the table sure does see the guy getting called out for it. And that's what helps establish the culture of the room, especially when it's then backed up by the floor. And maybe it plants a seed when it absolutely heads, you know, when, when tempers cool off and the player goes back home, maybe they think about it a little bit more. Maybe they don't want to be seen as that guy. Um, yeah, that guy. And isn't it worth it? Isn't that worth it? Like, isn't it, isn't it worth it for the chance for that to happen? Because most of the time it is all guys at the table. So, you know, is that, is the one guy really going to disagree with all the guys? Like, no, he's probably going to, probably going to agree with them. Like, Oh, maybe I was being an asshole, you know, for sure. Yeah. All right. A couple more questions. Uh, Mm -hmm. what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Oh boy. A project that I am working on that is near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Can I say myself? (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's very near and dear to your heart. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being totally honest. No, I mean, like I have a few projects that I work on in poker. Um, I have, um, I obviously am a sponsored pro with Party Poker US and Borgata Poker. So I work with them. And then uh, there may or may not be some exciting news coming out soon with maybe the WPT and maybe not the WPT. So we're just not going to talk about that. So that may or may not be a project that I'm working on. But most most of my work is is honestly, Brad is is um, spent on myself. 
and most of my study time is spent on myself. And I, I do work very hard during the day. And the reason I have to is because I don't have the flexibility or the freedom that I used to anymore. So because I have Luca, and so I only have X amount of hours for X amount of you know, spurts throughout the day that I can get things done. So it's forced me to become very refined in my scheduling and study sessions. And so uh, as of right now, I am my focus in my life. My, my work is my priority and it kind of takes priority over everything else other than, you know, my son. But I am, you know, I... I'm at a, you know, kind of an interesting point in my career where I kind of had to make a decision, you know, what route was I going to go, you know? And so I made my decision and it requires a lot of work <laughs> Come to find out. So, um, <laughs> that's what I thought that's life. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, it sounds so selfish and whatever, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on kind of like a massive re-education project almost and just kind of like a totally, totally different, you know, method. So, um, yeah, my project is myself. I'm investing in myself. That's kind of the way I look at it. Sounds fun. Sounds like yeah. uh, something that, you know, obviously learning, growing. I think that when it comes to playing poker, uh, Fedor Holtz was on the show and something he said stuck with me that when he retired from poker, he realized that he had been playing poker for money and he had initially fallen in love with poker because he loved learning and he loved growing. Mm -hmm. And when he stopped the learning and the growing, poker didn't mean as much to him anymore. And so focusing on yourself, learning, growing, educating, that's awesome to me. I think that's what what else is is there in the human experience than that? (laughs) Yeah, I, I really don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so final oh, yeah. question, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Webs? So I'm on Twitter at Katie Stone Poker. Uh, and then I'm also on Instagram at Katie Poker. And then I do have a website and my website isn't really up to date. It's just kind of like a uh, short background bio info. Pictures and then I do need to update it with like recent um, final tables I've commentated and stuff. But it's just katie.poker. That's my website. Awesome. Um, it's yeah. been great having you on. Let's do this again in the near future. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. My 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 best friend is Jen Shahadi, and she she told me that you were really great to talk to. So and she's generally right about everything. So she's very <laughs> very right about this. <laughs> Must be nice just to be right about everything. Um, Listen, you pick your best friends and just pick the best friends that are right about everything, no matter what. And you just say, "Yep, yep, yep." <laughs> going back to our tribe, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So yeah, hard yeah. to go wrong when your best friend is always right about everything. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Good luck. Good luck, Katie, on your project. That is certainly not with the WPT. And uh, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's talk again soon. Thank you so much, Brad, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. 
If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.